Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Even with Jim's warning, I sang the wrong words. <laughs> so, will you pray with me? Lord, uh, we thank you for a room full of generous givers who return that which you've given to them. May we steward these resources well, and may more people know of your story. Lord, as we come to your word, open our hearts and minds to receive that which you'll speak through the text and through Jim, that we might be transformed more into your image and share your story more broadly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, well, I thank Chad for reading what a fascinating scripture, isn't it? I love that foolishness bit, um, mainly because I find myself being foolish so very often. Um, not a shocker to many of you, which is why you're not laughing, and that's encouraging <laughs> to me. Um, but there's something about that passage this morning that, uh, that kind of struck me as we were preparing for today and to talk about this this particular religion that's very different. I'm going to warn you, uh, there's going to be times during this morning that it's going to sound, it's going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. I'm just going to keep on dousing you, just to warn you. Um, because a lot of what we're going to hear is going to go, what? But it's always good to remember that there's a lot of people who, don't, or who, who haven't heard that Jesus loves them, that to them it sounds like foolishness. Let's keep that in mind this morning. Um, as we begin to talk about this last uh, religion in this Coexist series, uh, I want to, how many of you all have ever watched or seen the movie The Matrix? Show me, show me your hands. Matrix is one of my favorite movies. It's the story of this, if you don't know, this young savior-like type figure who has the name Neo. And he's coming to grips with the identity that he's the savior. And Neo is taken at one point to this all-knowing oracle prophetess to explore his true calling. Isn't that great? It's like disciple intensive, exploring your calling. And the oracle ends up being this chain-smoking African-American woman who bakes cookies. And I love that. Just awesome. And as Neo waits for his visit with her, um, he finds himself in this living room, and there's a bunch of children on the floor, and one of them looks up to him and piques his Neo's attention, and he holds this spoon, this big kitchen spoon up, and then, as we're watching, the kid bends the spoon with his mind. It is trippy, and Neo stunned, and the child then hands the spoon to Neo and says, do not try and bend the spoon, that's impossible. 
Duh. <laughs> Instead, the boy says, try to realize the truth. What's the truth? Neo asked. And the boy responds, there is no spoon. Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends, but only yourself. It is a weird scene, y'all. I'm not even kidding. It's also really cool, and it's also very Buddhist. Um, in The Matrix, Neo and this band of companions are trying to break free from make-believe reality that surrounds all things. It's a reality that says human, humanity, uh, we're enslaved by computers, which reminds me, would you hold my phone for me for just a little bit? See, The Matrix is one of these most popular movies of all times. It's dark, it's chock full of these mind-blowing scenes and these special effects. That's just, a, it's wow to watch. But again, it's a movie that is deeply Buddhist in its nature. Over the course of our exploring the other religions, we've touched base with the grandfather of monotheism, uh, which is Judaism. We've touched base with the cousin of both Judaism and Christianity, Islam. And today we're talking about Buddhism, a religion that touches millions of people across the globe and predates both Islam and Christianity by several hundred years or more. It is uh, one of the oldest, most ancient ways of life in the world as we know it. And, and here in America, we're really only aware of bits and pieces, pop culture elements of Buddhism. It seems to me to be a religion that really does demand more of its followers, of its adherents, than just showing up on Sunday morning to church. It's also really nebulous in its doctrines and how it, things flow out. And as a result, Buddhism, again, big in pop culture, it's called to end suffering intrigues many of us in the West, and yet we go, I don't still really know a whole lot about it. Now, I want to reiterate to you all, I am not an expert on Buddhism. Many of you may be, and so you can correct me where I am wrong, because I probably am. <laughs> um, but as I've studied over the last several weeks, I've come to grips that Buddhism is as diverse as it is confusing. Buddhism began in 560 BC um, when a young prince was born to a wealthy ruler in a province of India. At his birth, it was said later on um, that um, the moment he was born, women from the, 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 the palace broke out into song and celebration. The, the child's name was Siddhartha Gautama. I'm probably butchering the last name, so we'll just call him Siddhartha, Okay. Siddhartha's adherents later on would say that he was born enlightened and that at the moment of his birth, he took eight steps that would signify an important place in his life in the future. Uh, um, at that moment, a holy man came and prophesied over Siddhartha and said that there were two opportunities, two paths that he was going to be able to take. The first was that he would be a great leader in the country. The second would be that he would be a holy man. What would make the difference in the past is if Siddhartha could avoid suffering. He didn't avoid it very long because Siddhartha's mother died in labor. 
his father thinking that a, a political leader was a much better idea for his son than a religious person, removed all possibilities of suffering from the palace, basically wrapped it in bubble wrap. He raised Siddhartha with all the finest things so that the, this boy never knew any hurt or pain or loss, none. At a very young age, uh, pampered as he was, he was married to a beautiful woman, was about to become a father, and before this was all to occur, Siddhartha believed and he thought, I need to get beyond the walls of my palace and see life. So against the wishes of his father, Siddhartha got into a carriage and on four subsequent journeys, he witnessed suffering and death that he could not understand. He became depressed. So depressed uh, that he found that his life's motive was to understand and to remove, eradicate suffering from the world. Now, depending on what tradition you read, Siddhartha woke in the middle of the night after realizing this needed to happen. He kissed his sleeping wife and newborn son, and he left them never to return. Siddhartha took up the life of an ascetic, traveling across the, the countryside, depriving his body, learning from gurus and holy men. He, he deprived his body so much that it was said that he could feel his spine through his stomach. Gross, right? One day, overwhelmed by this lack of answers that he was seeking from all of these holy people, Siddhartha decided he would sit underneath a Bodhi tree and not move until he sought or received the understanding of this the suffering. And he did this under this one tree for 49 days. After about 30 days, he had this awakening and he realized that there was the truth of reality. I don't know if it's because his legs were asleep or what, but for 19 more days, he sat there. Finally, rising from his meditation, Siddhartha decided to shake this name. This would not define him anymore he would take on a new name, the Buddha, the Enlightened One. The Buddha had a choice to make at this moment. See, he had achieved something that no one else in all of creation or humanity had achieved. He had received this enlightenment, this oneness, and he had done so on his own. So the Buddha had, he could either sit there and let others join him and do it on their own, or he could teach them this truth that he had been given. He decided that the eradication of suffering meant that he should share his way to enlightenment. So the Buddha achieved perfect unity in this moment, perfect oneness with all things so that he knew all things and he could point others towards enlightenment. We tracking? Shake your head, or shake your head. <laughs> Gathering some disciples, um, he, he gathered them to teach them the ways of the master. The Buddha said that the, the path to enlightenment took place under something called the Four Noble Truths, and you could do this by practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, we're going to go over these in a minute, but first, I want to do a little definition. There's some words that Buddhism uses that very easily have become, well, they've lost their meaning. So we're going to recapture those as best I can with the study that I've done in the last several weeks. We're going to start with the word that's probably the most familiar to us in our culture, and that is karma. Have you heard karma? Let the words up on the, the screen. You can follow along. Karma, we often think it's a reaction. 
I do this, this is going to happen to me. That's a, that's a pop culture definition. It's a wrong definition of karma. Karma is really just a word for action or volition. Therefore, you can have good karma, good actions. You can have bad karma, which are bad actions. Karma is not what goes around comes around. I mean, that's still a truth in many ways, but that's not what karma is. Another word, second word that we need to know is dharma. Um, dharma means teaching. And so when you hear things like the wheel of dharma, it is the laws or the teachings of the universe and of Buddhism, the teachings that the Buddha learned. You learn the dharma from the enlightened ones, the Buddhas. And the Buddha uh, was a title, continued to be given to other people. And you learn these dharmas within the sanja, the community, the church. You gather and you learn these dharma. These, these, the end goal of Buddhism is enlightenment, oneness, unity. Um, and, and eternally, this enlightenment occurs in a place called nirvana. Now, nirvana, we need to know very clearly, is not heaven. Nirvana is not heaven. It is instead the ending of a cycle of existence. It is breaking the path that is called samsara. It's the last word on the screen. Samsara is a big deal. See, in Buddhism, samsara is what causes the problem that Buddhism is trying to answer. The problem is that humanity is ignorant of how to end suffering. This is what Buddhism tries to answer. In order to get into this suffering, we take up the four noble truths that Buddha learned underneath that Bodhi tree. The first one, as you'll see on the screen, is that all of life is suffering. It is constant. If that sounds depressing and negative to you, it's because it is. <laughs> but the Buddhists don't see it as that way because what they actually are saying is that human existence is unsatisfactory. Every good that we can encounter eventually becomes something not good, not satisfactory. It, it, it entails an element of suffering. Therefore, suffering is natural. I can love my family, but at some point, Alex, Tyler, and Ollie are going to leave the house. Therefore, the good of them being with me will end in suffering. Suffering is constant. The suffering that's constant, continually lived out over and over again because life is something that's reincarnated. This is the cycle of samsara. Hundreds of times, based on your good deeds, your bad deeds, your good karma, your bad karma. You are reincarnated. There's no end to this cycle of suffering. The cycle of aging and sickness and death is, is truth number two. The second noble truth of Buddhism is that we are trapped in this samsara, in this cycle of, of suffering, because we attach ourselves to things that cause this suffering. In other words, relationships, people, things, they all are unsatisfactory attachments because at some point you will suffer as a result of them. Our building project is wonderful. I am suffering through it right now. <laughs> But the Buddha did say that samsara could be eliminated. 
Suffering could come to an end by choosing, number three, to step out of our ignorance. The truth of the end of suffering is that we must have insight or awareness that releases us from this. And the insight is that the self that longs for attachment is unreal. For those places inside of us that want to be with somebody or something, that's the unreal of our existence. The Dharma, the law of being born, states that we yearn to be free from suffering, both present and from our reincarnated state. In order to obtain this insight, we go to the fourth, um, the fourth piece of the path, and that is living the noble eightfold path. Let me quote from Derek Cooper's brilliant work, Christianity and World Religions, as he attempts to show us the progression of the Eightfold Path. Alex, go ahead and put those on there, and I'm going to read this. The attuning of enlightenment entails the following. Seeing things as they truly are and understanding the reality of and cause of suffering. Two, thinking accordingly. Three, speaking the truth. Four, acting and doing according to this teaching. Five, living in a manner that does not disrupt other life. Six, spending one's time doing good things and not becoming attached to anything. Seven, being aware of one's thoughts all the time. And eight, focusing one's mind and concentrating. Now, I like that narrative, but these are it right here. Right beliefs, right thoughts, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditating. Everybody all right? <laughs> right? There it goes. It's trickling. We'll get there. <laughs> the Buddha stated that if we were to, um, to do these things, then we could break this pattern, this cycle of samsara, this repeated cycle of suffering in life. Then we would be able to obtain nirvana, enlightenment, oneness with all things. And when we do this, we cease to exist. I want to say again, remember I said nirvana is not heaven? What is nirvana then? Well, nirvana is more like being absorbed into some cosmic soup of reality where you lose all of your identity whatsoever. Have you ever had a soup that has no flavor all at all in it, but you know there's a bunch of stuff in it? That's nirvana. That sounds a little bit crass, but it's a good picture. The Buddha's teachings have been passed on for nearly 2,500 years, but that doesn't mean that Buddhism is uniform and equal. In fact, while all Buddhists would, would uh, accept the Four noble, noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, very few really agree beyond that. The smallest group of Buddhists in the world today are most like their founder, the Buddha, Siddhartha. They're called the Theravada Buddhists, and this group rejects deity altogether, saying that the breaking of samsara, the achieving of nirvana, is done by yourself. Um, to, to the Theravada Buddhism, there is no God. Buddha, the Buddha, is not, div is not divine. He's just the enlightened one. He's one just like us a teacher only, not a divine figure to be worshipped at all. Now, opposite to Theravada, and, and Theravada Buddhism is very internal. You do this on your own. You are supported by laity, in a sense, who feed you while you go on your path. 
Opposite of Theravada Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism. We might call this the progressive wing of their church. Here the Buddha is is divine. The Buddha is a god in Mahayana Buddhism. The path to enlightenment occurs through the help of various divinities, various gods. Some of them were just reincarnated human beings who are working out their bad karma. Many Buddhists would even say that Jesus was a reincarnated figure who was now in heaven and is working off his bad karma. They're waiting to purge themselves. The focus of of the Theravada Buddhism is inward, of Mahayana Buddhism is outward. So good karma must be directed to end the suffering of everybody else on the planet, not just the individual, for we're all connected. We are all one, as the Buddha was one. But even these designations aren't enough. Within Mahayana Buddhism, there are three, there are several branches. I want to talk about the three most well known. The first is Amitabha, which sees folks die and go to a purgatory of sorts, where they work their way out uh, until they get to eventual nirvana. Of the three, it's the least known. The second one, I bet you've heard, it's called Zen. Heard of Zen Buddhism? Zen invites people to go beyond reality and to see with our third eye or the original mind that reality itself is not real. There is no spoon. The third is Tibetan Buddhism, which seeks to reach enlightenment by doing all the good possible in the world and end suffering through the reincarnated life and work of a man called the Dalai Lama. Have you heard of the Dalai Lama? The Dalai Lama is considered a bodhisattva. I won't make you say that with me. A bodhisattva is an enlightened one who has refused to enter into nirvana, enter the soup of oneness, until the whole world finds enlightenment together. By all accounts, the current and much beloved Dalai Lama is the 14th reincarnation of the enlightened Bodhisattva. Elizabeth was telling me she read this week that the current Dalai Lama has uh, uh, divined, I don't know if that's the right word, that the next Dalai Lama, the one who follows him, will not be born in China, which will be interesting for the Chinese who think that they're the next Dalai Lama. I could keep going on and on about Buddhism, but quite frankly, I'm looking at your faces and you're looking at me like, (laughs) I honestly absorbed so much information the last three weeks studying on Buddhism that I was near a breakdown. I walked out of my office one day and Elizabeth was back there and I just went, I just don't understand it. I was was muttering, walking around and she goes, boss man, you need to take a break. It's true, Buddhism at its popular level is very intriguing. I mean, who doesn't want to end suffering, right? Who who wouldn't love the idea of seeking enlightenment? Um, But when I read this this religion, it's very eye-centric. Even the outward path is very eye-centric. Even the founder, the exemplar of Buddhism, left his own family, left his infant son, so that he could go on this path. He could be the enlightened one enlightened one. Now, I read that and I go, man, that's really selfish. And and I get it that a Buddhist would say, well, Jim, that's your truth, but that's what worked for the Buddha. 
Again, I like the idea of disappearing, letting other people tend to me while I seek enlightening. I like the idea of divine power assisting me while I seek an end to suffering. And if I'm stuck in some cycle of rebirth over and over again, I kind of want to get out of that. And I certainly, um, this idea of being in a soup where I lose my identity, that's problematic for me. As much as your truth is your truth, that's problematic me. I find the idea of this life with no meaning beyond just what we do right here, right now, pretty morbid. I agree that an end to suffering in life is important. We've devoted our lives to that as followers of Jesus. But I also know that through suffering, I find a much fuller life. I find that in my attachments, I may experience loss. I will experience loss. But I also experience the greatest thing that's ever come on this planet, and that's love. I see in Jesus a God who wasn't content to let me suffer on my own and figure it out on my own way, kind of like, but like a bodhisattva, this God came and lived into this world and decided we can do better and said that this kingdom that he's bringing on earth as it is in heaven is a whole lot more compelling and more inviting for me to be a part of than just some kind of illusion to what's around me. Buddhists, many of them anyway, live in the moment. I got to tell you, there's something really gorgeous about that. That's something that we as Christians badly need to learn. See, Christ invited his followers to yearn for his return, but um, to do the Jesus kind of work now that would prepare for that kingdom. I know a lot of Christians who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I know a lot of Christians who are really thinking through the end times and they've forgotten that they have an opportunity right here and right now for the kingdom to be at work. I got some people who are so worried about what's going to happen at General Conference at the end of February that they can't live and follow Jesus right here and right now. Woo, preacher, yeah. He invited us, he invited you, beloved of God, to be a part of his plan to end suffering. He invited us to be a part of a community that brings more than just sitting on our hands and waiting, but, an, but, but of acting and anticipating and enacting the kingdom of God wherever we are. See, for Buddhism, the way of salvation is primarily done through meditation, and the meditation in Buddhism is this emptying, where we don't think, we don't process anything. There are mantras to get us back on track, but the point is to be of nothing. Well, you know, Christians have been meditating for quite a long time, too. But the point of Christian meditation is not an emptying. Oh, nay, nay. The point of Christian meditation is to be filled with the presence and the truth and the grace and the love and the power of this God who says, we're going to end suffering. In the upper room, the disciples were waiting, and what were they doing? Meditating. When the Spirit of God poured out. Peter is meditating on a roof in Joppa when the Spirit shows up and says, get up, and all of a sudden, we Gentiles are included into the story. Friends, I think we need to reclaim this idea of meditating, not an emptying one that ends up with just nothing. Blah. 
We need the meditating that invites us to be filled with the identity that God says that we have. We don't need to be bland soup. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Go and flavor it, y'all. If Jesus was Southern. (laughs) Can I confess something to you this morning? I'm really glad that we had to postpone Buddhism to this week. Because I got to tell you all, I have needed to do some meditating. Not an emptying out, but a filling up. There are so many negative voices out there right now, all around us, that it is overwhelming. It's like having spiritual tendonitis that just this ringing continually goes off in our minds and in our heads. Think about it. This Just this week, our collective ears right now, what have we had? Protests that involve hate speech, poor Catholic teenagers and a Native American, a government shutdown that's shown the world just how childish leadership can be, a church bombing in the Philippines where people were worshiping, complete insanity in the, the country of Venezuela where our Methodist seminary is striving to stay open, It's affecting the church there beyond words. We've got a young boy who who breaks up with his girlfriend in Louisiana, shoots his own parents, then shoots her parents and her. Meditating has allowed me to do something, a spiritual discipline that I've never heard preached. Do you want to hear it? It's the spiritual discipline of shutting up. reflecting on the goodness of this God who says, Jim, you don't have to have all the answers. I do. What you do need to know is what that woman at Waffle House heard from Carol, is that you were loved. What you do need to know and hear is that when Jesus was baptized, when the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, this is my Son, I love him and I find great joy in him, that was a word for us as followers from then all time. When we become followers of Jesus, we are adopted into this family where the Father says, you are my beloved and I find great joy in you. That's a whole lot better than all the other noise, amen? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to end our worship with some meditation. I invite you to take the stuff that's in your hands and push it to the side because I can give you this truth and you can go, okay, and it can go one ear hole and out the other ear hole and mean nothing. Or it can mess with you the rest of today and the rest of this week and the rest of your life if you'll let it. Are you ready? You are the beloved child of the God who calls himself Father. Not like an earthly father that has failed us, that has done bad things and terrible things, but a father who is good and pure and whole and has the best interest for you. You are a beloved child of God. And you Bring him much joy. You are the beloved child of God. And you bring him much joy.
church, you have a choice. That can go in one ear hole and out the other. Or it can change everything. Everything from here on out. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity through this series to have been able to learn about those who are different and who believe differently than we do. Gracious God, we thank you for Jesus, who we believe is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who points to the Father. We thank you that he didn't just come and leave and that was it, but he invited us to join him in his work, his kingdom work of sharing the love of God with all those around us. God, I, I pray that this truth, this reality of who we are, the beloved children of, of you, a people who bring you much joy, would root so deeply in us that wherever we go, as Rich Mullins would say, we would leave little puddles of grace and mercy. That waitresses and checkout folks and coworkers and even um, folks who call us on the phone wanting to sell us insurance would know your love just because they've had an encounter with you through us. God, help us as we leave the series behind not to just coexist, not to just tolerate, but to love like Jesus, to be like Jesus, to show the world Jesus. Holy Spirit, empower us to be about that kingdom work because we can't do it on our own. We love you, we honor you, we give you thanks. For it is the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer and all God's children said, amen. A couple things as we prepare to leave this place. Um, first off, um,